Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Have you ever felt a little bit confused sometimes about maybe who you were called to be or maybe where you fit in a, in a certain place of life or, or maybe trying to discover, Lord, what is my purpose? What, what's, what's happening on the inside of me? God, what are you doing with my life? Anybody ever feel like that? Am I the only one? Okay, good. You know, I, I remember hearing a, a story about a gentleman, and he went for a photo shoot in 1986. And he went to try to uh, pursue a career in commercials and acting. And so he goes to this photo shoot, and he gets no response. And so he's walking 15 years later down the aisle of somewhat of a Safeway or a grocery store. And, and this is a picture that he saw. Let me show you. He sees this picture. And on this picture, it's, it's a picture of, of a coffee uh, Nest Cafe. So you can go to that picture if you guys have it on the screen. Shoot it there for me. Um, so he goes and he's walking past this and he realizes that's his face. <laughs> like he's been walking past Taster's Choice for 15 years. And this particular day, he's like, oh, that's me. The only problem was he never got a call. He never got a call that they used his picture. So through a lot of litigations and through a lot of, you know, lawyers and attorneys, they ended up giving him $1 million for every 15 years that they used his picture. But can I just tell you, it pays to know who you are. Like it does. Or, or, or better said, it pays to know whose you are. You know, because I, I really believe that, you know, we're living in a, a critical day and it's kind of a scary time. You know, nine million people get their identity stolen every single year. Nine million. And I have a picture I want to show you. Cyberspace has kind of increased this just a little bit more. Everybody's nervous about uh, giving their information out. So we're, we're very careful, right? We're very careful with giving out our driver's license, our social security number. Uh, many of us are, don't like to give our email out any longer because we get spammed. And I don't know about you, but I've been frustrated lately that telemarketers now have my cell phone number. How in the world did that happen? Right? And so we go, we go to great lengths to protect ourselves. I mean, some of us have even hired companies. You can hire a company that deals with identity theft. Because once your identity is stolen, what ends up happening is, is it creates such a tangled web, it's really hard to get restored back to a sound state. And so what this company does, companies like LifeLock, they'll, they'll, they'll give you money, they'll restore you financially, and they'll help untangle the massive web. It's kind of like an insurance for identity theft. And I started thinking, you know, we go to such degree to protect our identity naturally. But sometimes I think we fail to, to see that we have an enemy of our soul that is interested in our identity. He's interested in distorting, confusing, and, and, and interested in doing whatever he can to keep us from who God says that we are and what God has called us to do. And I think it happens in, in, in very subtle ways. Through misconceptions, very subtle ways in our culture through simple misconceptions. Now, my father-in-law, he is that guy that um, knows everything. 
but he really knows it. You guys know that? So stepping into my marriage with my wife, we've been married 14 years this August. Uh, it was really intimidating. Yes, it's awesome. And feel free, you guys can shout at me, you guys can say amen, you guys say preach your white boy, whatever you guys want to say, we're good. And, uh, and so, so I, I remember being uh, in his, you know, his space feeling really intimidated because this guy just knows everything. He can build a house from scratch. He's that guy. Uh, he can tell you every insect that crawls the, the face of the earth. He's the guy that goes hunting for bears. He's that type of a man. You know, some big shoes to fill. And I remember one time we're in my garage and I put up this swing for my kids. You know, those little plastic swings that you put little kiddos in and and I thought I did a great job. I, I drilled it to the, the top of the, 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 the I-beam, which is the, the place where you're supposed to drill in the bolts. And, and so he looks at me, he comes over, and he looks at me and says, that's going to break. I'm like, no, it's not. He's like, yep, yeah, that's not going to work. I was like, man, I, I put this up, and I did it well. He's like, yeah, that's the problem. You put it up. And uh, so, to, so to prove him wrong, I grabbed a hold of both of the strings or both of the ropes. And I said, see, let me show you that it's stable enough for my kids. So I swung on it. And sure enough, it broke. Right. I fall on my backside, knock my daughter over. She hits her head. I grab her, run upstairs like I'm concerned about her. But truthfully, I'm just embarrassed. And uh, it was just another moment where he was right. I was misconceived. You know, it seemed to be solid foundation. It seemed that it was appropriate, but it wasn't. And, and I think a, a misconception in our day, if you're taking notes, I want you to jot this down. I think a misconception in our day is this misconception of being true to yourself, of being true to yourself. Now, there's a little bit of truth in this. Like, for instance, uh, if you don't like cookie dough ice cream, which, by the way, if you don't, that's a sin. <laughs> Pastor Phil can show you in Leviticus when he gets back. Like, it's a It's a sin. But, but if you don't like cookie dough ice cream and people are pressuring you to, to eat cookie dough, then I would say, yeah, be true to yourself. Like, don't give in to that pressure. Like, keep it real. Don't, don't give in. Be true to yourself. But I think in our day, that's been taken to a whole different level, this idea of being true to ourselves. I, I think Shakespeare said it like this, to thine own self be true. And I think that sentiment, even though there might be a little bit of truth in there, I think that sentiment has permeated our culture in a, in a, in a very distinct way, and quite frankly, in, in a very disturbing way. You know, there, there's a Canadian philosopher, his name is, is Charles Taylor. Let me show you on the screen. He says this. He says that we live in the age of authenticity. And I think all of us have experienced this to one degree or another. If you go on Netflix right now, Brene Brown is crushing this idea of being vulnerable. Everybody wants to be vulnerable and transparent, and it's like this new way. Even though there's a lot of biblical truth to it, I think there's also a lot of misconceptions that are floating around as well. I got no hate or shade towards Brene Brown, but I'm just saying I, I think that if we're not careful, we can find ourselves going in a way that's just a little bit of a misconception. Now, now, in the age of authenticity, what that says is that we're all kind of designed in this unique way. We have this unique way of being ourselves, and we're free to give expression to those ways as we see fit. Right? We just have this unique way of, of being ourselves, and we're free to give expression to any desires that are within us. And the problem with that is, the standard to judge now becomes only internal to that individual person. 
And so the difficulty is really hard to call evil evil because we kind of live in this relativistic day where, well, that may be evil for you, but it's not really evil for me. So it's hard to call what's evil evil, what's wrong wrong, because the only standard by which many times we judge today is internal to that person. And that, that poses a huge problem for morality. Because basically, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down. Basically, what we're saying is uh, you can't tell anybody how to live. No one should tell you how to live. And I get that. I I understand the concept of that. Like, man, don't tell me how to live my life. I want to do my thing. And, And again, there's a little bit of truth to that. But I think there's a lot of misconception. And it poses this huge problem with morality because if we can't call evil evil, like, like let me show you a picture of this guy. Like if we can't call genocide evil, like, like let's just think about that for a moment. Wow. See, in the age of authenticity, what, what, what we basically say is, no, 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 Hitler and his boys were just simply giving in to the desires that they were feeling on the inside of them. They were freely expressing. So in other words, we should be applauding them. But none of us would say that. All of us would say, man, genocide is absolutely evil. But see, and, and here's the encouraging parts. You see, to assume evil is to assume good. To assume good is to assume that there is a moral law by which we differentiate between good and evil. And to assume there's a moral law is to assume that there's a moral law giver, a.k.a. G-O-D. I, I remember um, I was talking to a lady in, in Costco. Great things happen in Costco. I love Costco. <laughs> and I was, we struck up a conversation in the clothing department of Costco. How many guys get clothes at Costco? Shoes, socks, let's go. Um, and so she, she's a professor from MIT, and we start, strike up this conversation, and she tells me she you know, believes in evolution and, and the evolutionary theory, and she just kind of goes on this whole tangent. She says, what do you do? And I'm like, well, so glad you asked. I'm a pastor. And she was like, oh. And she looked at me. She said, you know, you, you know what you pastors ought to do? I'm like, what? Tell me. What, what do we need to do? She said, you need to be telling everybody how evil ISIS is. And I was like, well, why in the world would you want me to do that? And this, this is our conversation. True story. I said, because under your belief system, we should be applauding ISIS. Right? It's the evolutionary theory. It's survival of the fittest. Right? They're, just, they're just capitalizing and pushing themselves forward on top of the backs of the weak. Like, we should be encouraging them. And she was like, well, I said, so how can you call evil? How can you call that evil? Because to assume evil is to assume good. To assume good is to assume there's a moral law. To assume there's a moral law is to assume that there is a moral lawgiver being God. And so that's why when people say, man, I just can't believe in God because there's, there's all this evil in the world. I love Ravi Zacharias' response. He does way better than I do. He says it this way. He says, when you say there is too much evil in this world, you assume there is good. When you assume there is good, you assume there is such thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. I stole his line. Um, but if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. But that's who you're trying to disprove and not prove because if there is no moral law giver, there is no moral law. If there is no moral law, there is no good. If there is no good, there is no evil. What is your question? <laughs> Ravi is the man. And so, so in this attempts 
To be true to ourselves, many times we can deceive ourselves and start building our lives on something that's faulty, something that can't go the distance, something that can't satisfy. You see, the, the age of authenticity says the way to happiness is to be true to yourself, and that's where it crosses the line. To, the way to happiness is to be true to yourself. You know, my, my daughters, we, we love to build blocks. I'll, I'll show you a picture on the screen. Anybody ever try to build these blocks? I, I don't get very far with them before they love to knock them down. But these blocks are incredible because, you know, we have a lot of fun, and, and my daughters love to, to, to knock all of my, my towers down, my beautiful towers. It's a little bit hard for me to talk about because they, they get destroyed all the time. But, you know, you can only stack these blocks so high before they start to crumble. You can only stack them so high before they start to get that, that slant. And then you know, you know how it works, right? Then we try to put another block like halfway off to balance it out. And, and, but eventually it just crumbles. It, it, it doesn't have a strong enough foundation to go the distance. I, I love what Proverbs chapter 14 verse 12 says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Misconceptions. And so the truth of the matter is this, it's not about being true to yourself. If you're taking notes, you're definitely going to want to jot this down and take a picture. But in reality, the truth is this, is that God's will is not for us to conform into the image of our own true self, but into the image of the one true God. This is where life is lived at its best. Like God is not trying to rob your joy. God is for your joy. And, and, and it's something about, in his design, it's something that as we begin to pay attention to how God says, man, this is how you establish your life. Not to conform into the image of your one or your own true self, but rather to, to be conformed to the image of the one true God. Yeah. And so Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 9. He says, it, he says it very clearly. He says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined. Now let me back up real quick. You know, we all love Romans 8, 28, right? For God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Yes. Then he continues. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Paul said, what what is God's design? Is it to conform into the image of our own true self? He said, no, no, no. God's best for us is when we're being transformed and conformed into the image of the one true God, into the image of his son, meaning Jesus, right? Are you guys tracking with me this morning? I'm trying to teach you something this morning. Now, now, now what, what's encouraging about this is, is it, it preaches really well and it sounds good. Let's be conformed to the image of God. Come on, somebody, right? But how in the world does that happen? How do we conform into the image of God. Well, Paul continues to tell us and give us a sneak peek into this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he says this. He says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now, I love this picture. I'm sure you guys have talked about beholding at this church like crazy. And, and can I just tell you, you need to be reminded, I need to be reminded of that all the time because so many things are fighting for our affection and our attention. And so, so Paul is saying there's something about beholding the glory and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, right? 
But, but, but this, this word beholding, it, it comes with this notion of as in a reflection. And Paul's goal is not to so much focus on the reflection, but the intimacy as one looking in the mirror, a closeness. That is, we are beholding the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Jesus through the word of God, the spirit of God, then begins to transform us from the inside out. I just think the songs are so appropriate today for, for where we're going. Yeah. And so Paul is saying, listen, behold, behold, that's the key. Beholding the Lord, beholding the glory of God is the key to transformation. Now, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting because the enemy, I would, I would assume, would work so hard to keep us from beholding. Yeah. Yeah. Because if he can keep us from beholding, many times he can discourage us from believing. And so he just works overtime. Let me, let me just do whatever I can to distract you. Let me do whatever I can to have you fix your gaze on something other than truth and something other than the glory, beauty, and majesty of Jesus. Like Whatever I can do, just let me get your gaze off of that. Because if your gaze is fixed on Jesus, that equals transformation, ladies and gentlemen. That equals transformation from the inside out. Now, the, the encouraging part about this is that Satan necessarily can't steal your identity, but he will work really hard to get you to forfeit it. He will work really hard to get your gaze off of the beauty, off of the majesty of Jesus. He'll do whatever he can to keep you from walking in everything that God has called you to, everything that God has for you. And he would love to just keep you stuck in circles around a mountain of misconception. And, and you're fighting in this place of misconception, longing and, and, and trying to, to grab on, uh, onto happiness as it's promised, but it just seems to be like, like water in the fist. Like, man, I just, it's just, I just can't seem to, to get a, 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 gris, a, a grip on this. We find ourselves distracted with misconceptions. And I, and I think that really drops us right into the heart of our text today. Uh, we're going to be in, in the book of Haggai. Anybody ever been to Haggai recently? Come on. Uh, listen, if you're new to church, Haggai's in the Old Testament, and uh, he's one of the minor prophets. And, and it's really interesting. It's really short. It's a great read if, if, you, if you've never dived into the book of Haggai or Haggai, however you want to pronounce it. But I want to give you a little bit of context uh, of where we're going because I, I think that Haggai's going to help us in chapter 1 paint a great picture of what we're talking about today and, and how it really translates to you, to you and I. And so, so Haggai, the, the context uh, really takes place. The, the people of Israel have been captured by the Babylonians. They've been in captivity for about 70 years. Uh, the Persians end up overthrowing the Babylonians uh, under the reign of King Cyrus. And King Cyrus releases the people of Israel back to Jerusalem. He releases them back to establish worship again, to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple. And, uh, and so, so they were released to go back and establish some worship. Now, they were doing good for about a month. Come on, anybody ever start well but not finish? They were doing great for about a month. But then they started to get discouraged. Their enemies were mocking them. They were able to lay a foundation of the temple. They were able to establish a little bit of worship, but it, it, it just kind of fizzled quickly. And as their enemies were mocking and, 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 and still kind of oppressing there was this sense of discouragement that came over them. And they stopped beholding. And the moment that they stopped beholding God's word, God's glory, they started to get discouraged from believing. 
And they started to shift their beholding from God to beholding themselves. And it was kind of a challenge for them because they started to recognize that, man, we're not very fruitful like this. It says that their harvests were, were very small. They were working really, really hard, but not producing much as a result of their hard work and labor. And so it was kind of those frustrating moments, like they're giving it all they got, but it's just producing so little. All these promises of what we hope is going to happen, but once again, it's just, it's not delivering. And so in other words, if you're taking notes, jot this down, is that their lives took priority over God's glory. Their lives started to take priority over God's glory. And like, I get it. Like, they've, they've been in captivity a long time. They're trying to figure this whole thing out. But they're building their lives on something that was faulty. They were building, they started to build their lives and establish their lives on a misconception. Now, can I just tell you, it's not wrong to be concerned about yourself. But it is wrong to be consumed with yourself. And there's a big difference. I I love what John Piper said. He says it like this. He says that, that when we worship God, he gets what he deserves. And somehow in this mystery, we get what we need. It's just this, this beautiful picture of, of priorities. And anytime we start to mix up those priorities, can I just tell you, you're not going to experience God's best. You're not going to experience all that God has for you. Now, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel that if you come and you give your life to Jesus, then everything's just going to go smooth. Come on, we know that's not true. But what I am saying is that when we begin to prioritize God first, Man, doors of enrichment spiritually start to open up that even in the midst of ruins, life becomes worth living. Life becomes worth living. And so so they begin to exchange the glory of God for their lives. Their lives begin to take priority over God's glory. And I think what, what ends up happening as we see this unpack in this text is that The enemy loves to distract us from beholding. That's really the heart of this message. He loves to distract us from beholding. And I think in Haggai, we see three distractions in this first chapter that I want to point out to you. Now, I want you to think of this kind of with a two-filtered lens. Back in the Old Testament, they used to have to go to the temple to worship. For us now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are temples of the Holy Spirit now. Now, that when we put our faith in Christ, God places his spirit on the inside of us, and we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you come to this crown plaza, uh, the crown plaza does not make the church. We make the church. Are you guys tracking me? When we come into this building, it doesn't matter where we meet. It's that it's us filled with the spirit of God, worshiping collectively. And so I want you to get that picture that, yeah, God wants to do something collectively with us as a church. But God also wants to do something personally inside of you. So I want you to filter uh, the rest of our time together through those two filters. Can we do that? Yeah. And so, so the, first, the first aspect or the first distraction that we see in Haggai is that the enemy loves to distract us with excuses. Excuses. Let's go. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2 it says this. It says, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Ouch. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about excuses, I immediately jump towards laziness. Like, 
why you got so many, like, come on, do something, right? But, but I think if, if we're honest, I think if we look a little bit deeper, I think laziness is really a byproduct of brokenness. Because these guys have been in captivity for 70 plus years in a self-centered culture, so much so that King Nebuchadnezzar built a, built a golden image of himself that people might worship him. And so, so you have this, uh, this aspect of bad company corrupts good char- character. They're coming out of this self-centered culture, and they're dealing with some things. Now, now, even though they haven't lost their identity, they're starting to shift from who God has called them to be and what God has called them to do. Like God has set them free that they would come and, and reestablish worship to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city. And instead of coming back to worship God, they're now exchanging worship for God to worship for themselves or worship of themselves. And so we see they're just, they're, they're getting these priorities mixed up. But a lot of times we get our priorities mixed up when we're dealing with baggage, when we're dealing with brokenness. Come on, is anybody broken in the building? And, and when, broken, when baggage is not dealt with, it's so easy to quit. It's so easy to look at, at all of the ruin and just be like, oh, I don't want to deal with that. How, how are we going to rebuild this thing? I mean, look, at Solomon's temple was glorious. Like, how are we going to compare to that? So we start to look at our marriages. We're like, man, I just don't know if I can go the distance. We look at our finances and see the ruins. Come on, somebody, Bay Area living. And we're like, ah, I just don't know. You know, look within our own hearts. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people every single day that are wrestling with anxiety and depression. Just trying to just navigate and figure out life. And they've been wounded or, you know, there's just some, just tons of stuff happening. Sometimes things like that come out of the blue and they're just trying to figure it out. Listen, when we're dealing with brokenness and it's not dealt with, we have to deal with it somehow. And so many times we, we either quit or we reduce to comfort. We reduce to, to medicate. We reduce to, you know, just trying to, to make the pain go away, if you would. We start to, instead of looking to, towards vision, we start to reduce to a place of comfortability. I don't want to look at the rubble. I don't want to see it. I just want to try to build around it. I just want to try to build something that will distract me, that will satisfy all around the rubble. Matter of fact, don't put a window next to the view of the temple. Let, let's not even look. And so we start to exchange vision for comfort. We start, start to exchange faithfulness for comfort. We start to exchange God's word for comfort. We start to exchange all of these different areas, and, and, and we stop beholding the glory and the beauty and the promises of God, and we get our eyes on, onto superficial things. We get our eyes onto beholding the rubble, beholding the ruins, and as a result of that, what happens? If he can distract you from beholding, he can discourage you from believing. And so these guys, they're, they're, they're trying to figure all this out. They're reducing to comfort. Man, I just don't know how we're going to do this. I mean, how are we going to make something out of this? And I don't know about you, but I think a lot of times, 
I think a lot of times if we get down to the root of this whole topic, from laziness to brokenness to disappointment, I think at the root of it, it's, it's fear. It's like we're just afraid to, to start. What if it doesn't work? Come on, planting a church is not easy. Like you got to say yes before you see anything. What if it doesn't work? What if, what if it, it's, it's not going to stain? What, what if it's not going to end? We're so afraid of being disappointed. And instead of wanting to even try, we just don't want to be disappointed. So we just live in a state of disappointment. I mean, that is not God's best for us. You guys ever seen the movie Top Gun? Come on, I'm dating myself right now. 39 strong today. About to be 40 in October. But still look like I'm 25. Come on. It's the glasses that hide the crow's feet. But I remember Top Gun, there, there was this, this, this fighter pilot, his name was Maverick. And Maverick was always on the edge, right? He was always willing, willing, willing to drive a little bit faster, willing to push limits, great vision, great tenacity. Well, long story short, he, he gets into uh, what they call a flat spin, right? He's, he's pushing the limits on, on one competition and He's in this flight school, and he's trying to be the best, and he pushes limits that he shouldn't have, and he ends up in a flat spin. Well, in a flat spin, you can't get out of, so he hits the eject button, and, and he is able to eject, but his buddy hits the canopy. Boom, and he dies. And so you, the movie kind of continues, and, and the, the general basically comes over and says, hey, we got to get him up in a plane as fast as we can, right? Because now he's dealing with some stuff, and if he stays put too long, he's not going to want to do this anymore, so they get him in the plane, this is like the best pilot in the school, but he refuses to engage. Perfect opportunities to engage. You hear his, his little back co-pilot saying, Math, come on, man, you got to engage, man. And, and you hear him breathing in, in, inside of the, the, the little, little oxygen mask. It's not good. It's no good. It's just it's not a good time. It's, it's not good. They're like, no, come on, you got to engage. It's not good. It's just it's not good. It's not good. It's not, it's not a good time. And that's where these guys were at. They were like, man, rebuilding the temple is not a good, it's not a good time. It's not, it's not a good time. It's just not a good time. Not a good time. But it seemed like a good time to build their own paneled houses. Just don't look at the ruins. Let's just try to build something comfortable. Let's try to build something for us. Just don't look at the mess. Let's reduce to comfort loves to distract us with excuses. The enemy loves to distract us with excuses because if he can distract us with excuses, if you're taking notes, jot this down, then many times he can distract us from evidence. He can distract us from evidence. And, and I, I think this is, this, is so, this is so key. You know, it was so clear that this was God's will for their life. I mean, this was absolutely clear that this was God's will for their life. Cyrus made it very clear that he released them to go back and to reestablish worship and, and to rebuild the city and, and to do everything that God had called them to do. He gave them money. They had the provision. They had everything that they needed. They were protected going from Judah to uh, going from the uh, Babylon to Judah with all the temple treasure. Everything was in place. But it wasn't just experiential that said that God was really in this. It wasn't just by experience that, that, um, that, it, that God made it very clear that this is what he was calling them to do. But it was also through the scripture. Right? So let, let's look together real quick. 
in uh, Isaiah chapter 42, 44, verse 28, uh, the prophet Isaiah was, was declaring what was to come. So God had already let them know, like, hey, it's not just based on your experience of what Cyrus is doing. I've already declared this is my purpose. This is when I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will certainly do as I say. He will command, rebuild Jerusalem. He will say, restore the temple. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 13 he says, I will raise up Cyrus to fulfill my righteous purpose, and I will guide his actions. He will restore my city and free my captive people. Without seeking a reward, I, the Lord of heaven's armies, have spoken. And so come on, ladies and gentlemen, this is so clear that this was God's plan for their life, that this was God's purpose for them, that this is who God was calling them to be and what God was calling them to do, but they stopped beholding. And so what happened? They were discouraged from believing. And so they no longer had faith in the word of God or his power to perform. And I was just thinking, man, I wonder how many promises of God that you and I have been given yet we're distracted from. Like how many things lie in ruins right now because we're simply distracted from the promise? That we've just simply lost sight of God's word. We've lost sight of God's power to perform everything that he says. And in turn, we're beholding everything else, and we wonder why these areas are not fruitful in our life. We wonder why that things aren't just, I just feel like I'm always striving. I'm always just trying to figure it out. I'm always, I mean, what about the promises that God speaks over our identity? I mean, just, just let that sink in for a moment. There's so many precious promises that God says, man, this is who you are. This is who I've called you to be. But we're so distracted from the evidence. We get so far away from God's word at moments and times. We stop beholding what's true, and we start beholding something that's faulty and superficial. And we wonder why there's so much turmoil and why there's a lack of fruitfulness. And so I, I don't know if you're aware of this. I'm sure that you are, that there is an assault on truth today, ladies and gentlemen. Like the enemy is just not excited. He wants to do whatever he can to have you live in a world of misconceptions. He may not be able to steal your identity, but if he can keep you outside of truth, then you'll easily forfeit it. You'll easily forfeit it. And so I, I was thinking, you know, this guy walking down Safeway, Walking down these aisles day after day after day, completely oblivious to the evidence that his face is on the coffee. Man, he probably bought some of that coffee and didn't even realize that his face was on it day after day, walking past the evidence. But like I said, it really pays to know who you are. It really pays to know whose you are. And so, so are, are you distracted today by the evidence, from the evidence? Are, are, are you distracted by excuses that's keeping you distracted from the evidence? There's, there's many phrases that sound great, but don't be deceived. Make sure, listen, in a world where, where there's an assault on truth, you and I need to dive into it. You and I need to behold the truth of God's word now more than ever before. Because, man, as the wind is blowing and ideologies are, are floating around everywhere, misconceptions are plaguing our culture, we got to be able to stand firm in those moments 
Listen, fully alive, God's best, living in the midst of Babylon, thriving. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so if he can distract us with excuses, many times he can distract us from the evidence. And the last one is this. If he can distract us from the evidence, many times he'll distract us by evasion. And so this is where we just want to evade. We just don't want to look. We just don't want to deal with. Look what he says in Haggai chapter 1. He says this. He says, you expected much, but behold, it amounted to little. And what he was saying was this. How's it working out for you? Being true to yourself. How's it going? You good? You good? Come on. He goes on to say, he said, and and what you brought home, I blew it away. Come on, you ever been walking from the grocery store and the bags break? And then a car runs them over. You're like, man, what? Can I get a break? And God's like, I'm trying to give you one. I'm trying trying to help you see how how is it working out for you. He He says, why, declares the Lord of hosts, because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. Now, this word busy in the Hebrew, it actually has, a, it's a dual meaning. It means to run after and to guard. And so it's almost like he's saying, listen, you are running after yours and doing everything to protect it. Just build, don't look. Just build, just run after, chase, pursue, and just guard this. But don't look at the ruins. Don't look at reality. Don't look at truth. Just build paneled houses. That's what we need. We need paneled houses full of excuses. Subtle ways we we become full of excuses. We start to get distracted from the evidence, and then we start to evade truth and reality. And these paneled homes that they were building, man, these panels were used for king's homes. They were trying to build their own little kingdom. Not because they're bad people. It's because there was brokenness. They're wrestling through trying trying to figure this whole thing out. They stop beholding, discourage them from believing. Can I just tell you, when you start to stop beholding the glory and the beauty of Jesus and you start to behold yourself, selfishness kicks in real quick. And selfishness just doesn't work. Ask any married couple in here today. Selfish work? No. I I remember a quick story. I remember um, remember we went uh, went out to a restaurant uh, one day after church, and earlier in that day, a lady came up to me after church and says, hey, Pastor Matt, can we pray for my friend? It's her third time with stage four cancer, and she's weeping. And so we're, we're, we're praying together and, and uh, just storming heaven, believing God to, to move in this woman's life. So long story short, we, we go out to eat Japanese that night. Anybody ever eat tippanyaki? Tippanyaki, where they, you kind of, they, you sit down, they cook in front of you, and you sit down with other people that you don't know, and so we go, and we, we sat down, and I told myself, I'm not talking to anybody. I don't want to be pastor. To, I, just, I just want to eat, and I want to rest, right? I just preached a couple of services. It's like, man, I just, just want to eat. I'm not going to talk because normally I just talk to everybody. And I'm like, no, I'm just going to eat. And, and so I sit down, and the Holy Spirit instantly starts saying, you need to talk to, the, to these people. Now, I wasn't being rude, but, you know, I just wasn't engaging in conversation. And so... So I was like, no, Lord. He's like, yes. I was like, no. He's like, yes. I was like, no. But I, I've been around long enough now where I'm like, fine, fine. So I start to engage in this, this conversation. I noticed they had some sports memorabilia on and from our city. And I said, hey, uh, do you know such and such? And, and uh, they were like, yeah, we, we know this family. And, and so I was like, yeah, well, I'm their pastor. And her face turned pale. I was like, I'm not going to take an offering. Don't worry. Like, are you... It just got real silent. 
And, and she, she looks at me and she said, you're their pastor? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm their pastor. She said, I'm the woman with cancer that you guys have been praying for. So I was like, what? How many of you guys know it got Pentecostal in that place real quick? <laughs> we stood up, started praying. To, you know, we, we stood up right in the, we're all crying. We stood up in the little Tippanyaki section. We're calling fire down from heaven. We're believing God. And this was the incredible thing. This woman did not get healed, but she left that moment knowing that, God, you have remembered me. She, she invited me to do her funeral when she died, and I got to preach the gospel to 700 people at her funeral. Like, like you, you never know what's on the other side of that yes. But there, there was a sense sometimes we just want to evade what God is trying to speak. And it's not just always about us. It's about those who are around us. But Satan would love in his subtle ways to get you caught up, distracted with excuses, distracted from the evidence. And he would love, love, love to have you wrapped up in misconceptions. And I think if we're honest, I think all of us have dealt with misconceptions. I think all of us in certain areas of our life, we've been misconceived in certain areas. And so I love what the Lord says. Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. He said, think carefully about your ways then. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. Saying, consider your ways. Have you exchanged the glory of God for your own glory? Come on, how, how, how is it working out? Can just, just consider. How is it working out for you? Think carefully, and how is it flowing? Like what? Just, just take a moment and, and ponder and just consider your ways. And the Lord's just saying, man, you planted much, but you harvested little. So how does this work on Monday? Let me bring this to an end. I simply want to encourage you to cry out for wisdom this week. Yeah. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. I want you to cry out for wisdom. Because I think a lot of times what keeps us from beholding is that there's a lack of the fear of the Lord in our life. You know, it, it says, you know, Paul's cry for the Ephesian church was, you know, God, that you would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And the fear of the Lord, the scripture says, is the beginning of wisdom. And many times it's fear that we're lacking, healthy fear. It goes on to say, chapter 1, verse 12, the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. You see, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but it doesn't start with the feeling. It starts by beholding. A lot of times we're waiting for a, for a feeling to move. Yeah. And I would say, no, 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 don't look for a feeling. Start beholding the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Start beholding. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, he says, In view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord, for this is your reasonable act of worship. But it's only reasonable in light of his mercy. It's only reasonable in light of beholding the beauty of the cross, his life, his death, his resurrection, his grace. It's only, see, a lot of times we jump right to present your body as a living sacrifice. But when you behold, it radically changes your motivation for laying your life down. And it becomes very reasonable in light of all that Jesus has done. Are you with me on that? And so they, be, they began to behold the word of the Lord again. They began to consider their ways. They began to see that what they were doing was fruitless. And, and so the Lord said, go get some timber and start to build. Go do it. So what did they do? They started to build. 
You know, I, I think a lot of times we think about fear of the Lord, we, we immediately go to, what do I need to do? But I believe the word that God put on my heart for you today is that the fear of the Lord and trusting in his word is not just about what you need to do, but it's also about believing who he says you are. It's not just the fear of the Lord like, okay, I got to go do something for God. It's like, no, no, you need to believe who God says that you are. Hey, Moses, I know you don't see yourself this way, but I'm going to be with you. Behold what I say. Behold my purpose. Behold my plan. Behold my word. Gideon, mighty warrior, as he's hiding in a wine press, I want you to behold how I see you. That yet in it of yourself you are nothing, but with me I will be with you. You can do all, you can do all things. I will be with you. Fear means that we behold him in such a way that we invite him into every space, that we would see his glory, that we would see his power, that we would see his wisdom, and that we would see that his plan will take us much further than ours. It's this picture of, it's this picture of, of, of a three iron in my hand. Three iron in my hand is full of bro- a bunch of broken windows and disappointment. But you put this club in Tiger's hand, it's championships. It's millions of dollars. Why? Because something happens when you put this club into the hand of the professional. They know how, it's, how it works. They know how to use it. They know how it, it's intricately designed. There's a form. There's a flow. Can I just tell you, listen, we put our fear of the Lord is just simply placing our life in the hand of the professional and just saying, God, we know that you have, you could take me so much further, that your design is so much better than I could have ever imagined. I close with this passage, Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. It says, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Somebody needs to hear that today. I am with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Now, this word stirred, it simply means to be awakened. But a lot of times where the stirring didn't start with the feeling, it started with obeying. It started with them beholding the beauty of God, the beauty of his word. And as they began to behold, as they began to take a hold of God's word, they began to put their life back into the hands of the professional. And then God stirred their hearts again to build. So listen, if you're in a discouraged place today, you're waiting for God to stir your hearts. Don't start with the feeling. Start with beholding and see that as you behold and as you step out and obey in view of his mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. It's very reasonable in light of all that he's done. And see that God doesn't stir your heart in such a way where you're so excited to build. You're so excited to move forward. And I believe that's for you personally and I believe that's for this church. Listen, if you're a little bit discouraged, a little bit down, a little bit, a little bit tired. Don't just try to muster up a feeling. Start beholding and see what God does. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, as we close, I pray that you seal this word in our hearts for your purpose and glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspired Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspired Churches through Instagram 
at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash inspirechurches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.